From Boise, Idaho and Idaho Education News, this is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. And one of those Attention Idaho reporters moments coming up here. The legislature is in town. Yeah, well, they're they're getting in town. They're milling around. They're awaiting the start of the session on Monday. And we're gearing up for that session. And we just came straight from the AP legislative preview. So we're going to decompress and do a little debriefing about what we heard from the governor, what we heard from legislative leaders, and what we expect to hear on Monday, because... If there was a recurring theme from Friday and the governor's comments, it's check back on Monday. Yeah, definitely stay tuned uh, till Monday. But I think we can do a little bit better than that. Uh, sure we, we each can. spent the end of 2019 and the first couple of days of this year talking to legislators and looking at issues that are likely to come up during the big 2020 session. We think education issues, both K-12 and higher ed, will be near the top of the list of things that lawmakers look at this year. And so the governor, that was sort of my takeaway from talking with the governor uh, today, which is Friday. Um, He said education issues will be a big part of his agenda. The task force will inform that. But in terms of the specifics, and very specifically in terms of the latest installment of his plan to increase K-3 reading scores, Governor Little said you will hear all about that on Monday, right? Right. I mean, that's what he kind of said. And that's typical standard fare of from these legislative previews. Oh, yeah, to the point that the host jokes about, you know, not having the governor spoil his own speech. Right. So there's always going to be an element of surprise, an element of news that comes out on Monday when the governor does uh, issue his budget report uh, and and makes uh, makes his state of the state address. Uh, So this was kind of a chance to sort of get a sense of maybe what to listen for on Monday, something in terms of literacy, something in terms of trying to continue towards uh, improving reading scores in, in, in the K-3 level, you know, and, and kind of a reprise of the idea of let's try to get every kid graduating out of third grade, leaving third grade reading at grade level, an unattainable number, as, as the governor was quick to point out, but still a goal uh, worth trying to shoot for to try to get as many kids reading at grade level at the end of third grade. And I think this is all likely going to go back to the task force uh, that I followed basically all spring, summer, and fall. Uh, But those recommendations, there were five of them issued in November, uh, really centered around those two areas, that K-3 early childhood reading and literacy area on the one end of the spectrum, and then the college and career readiness uh, area of the spectrum. But some of those recommendations new accountability system, uh, using growth on the Idaho reading indicator, that's your K-3 reading test, that screener test, using growth in those scores as compared to schools with similar demographic characteristics to create a new accountability system, uh, basically for the local level, to inform patrons, school board members about how they're doing. That was one of the recommendations. Expanding optional all-day kindergarten uh, is another recommendation. Expanding pay for veteran teachers is another recommendation. Uh, but as some legislators have quickly pointed out, in a tight budget year like 2020 is shaping up to be, probably can't do all of the task force recommendations in one year. And so I think everybody is looking for Monday's speech for maybe some direction, some prioritization, and maybe some phasing on how do we approach it in year one, and then what do we look like in years 
you know, two, three, and four. Yeah, I think when you look at the numbers and you, and you spent Thursday uh, looking at the beginning of the revenue outlook process, I don't think anybody can realistically expect that this budget that the governor presents on Monday is going to cover the, the entire rollout of uh, an expansion of the career ladder no. or a, a one-year large-scale expansion of all-day kindergarten because these are two initiatives that are into the tens of millions of dollars apiece Correct. if you if you roll them out in, in one fell swoop. That, I don't think, is going to happen. But what I think is going to be interesting to watch for on Monday is what kind of money, if any, does Governor Little put into teacher salaries, put into uh, career ladder version 2.0? What kind of money does the does Governor Little put into an expansion of all-day kindergarten over and above what's already happening in right. terms of the expansion of all-day kindergarten? And maybe how does he, how does Governor Little attempt to lay out that case to legislators who are going to want to see some return on investment? How does Governor Little explain the need to expand all-day kindergarten, further expand all-day kindergarten, and, and draw that nexus between all-day kindergarten and improved reading scores. How does Governor Little lay out the case for increasing teacher pay, especially veteran teacher pay, and draw that nexus to improving reading scores, to improving college and career readiness, to, to really you know, draw a connection between the money being spent and the end game in terms of student performance, student readiness, student achievement. How does the governor try to thread that needle, and how does he present that case on Monday? It's going to be very, I'm going to really be listening closely to hear what does the governor have to say about these task force recommendations, and how does he start to lay the groundwork for what could be a, you know, a, a difficult process uh, of trying to get legislative buy-in. Well, I'm glad that you brought up that term return on investment, because as I've been talking to members of the House Education Committee and members of the Joint Budget Committee, that's what a lot of Republicans have been asking about. That return on investment, what are we getting for the for the hundreds of millions of dollars that we've put into education over the last five years in incremental invest, investment? What are we getting for the $26 million that we spent this year on the literacy initiative? What are we getting out of these programs? What has the career ladder got us in terms of better outcomes for students? Uh, those are a lot of the questions that I hear legislators asking right now when I ask them about the upcoming session. And just thinking back to the House Education Committee and the level of scrutiny that it applied to legislation last year and the year before, I, I, I do think that Little will have to produce evidence, documents, and statistics showing that this investment uh, which has been more than $100 million in new spending with K-12 level in each of the past four years, um, he's going to have to show that, you know, w where it's going, where the money's going, why it's being spent in this direction, and, and the results that we're seeing. Because I, I, I think legislators are, and, and now that we're in a tight budget situation or a tighter budget situation, I think they have a lot of those questions about what are we getting for our, our money? How has the system improved over the last five years based on the... Uh, what, half a billion dollars, mm -hmm. basically, yeah. in incremental new investment over the last four or five years. What have the taxpayers of Idaho gotten for that? Right. So I think that this is going to be kind of a pivotal session for Governor Little in, in terms of education topics. Now, nothing we heard this morning indicates that the governor is 
feeling any differently about education as his priority going into the 2020 session. Governor Little continues to say, this is my top priority. This right. is my top goal. And drilling down further, literacy is one of his his top goals. You know, he said it again. Let's try to get 100% of third graders at grade level. And, and he was quick to say, you're never going to get to 100%. I mean, that, you know, obviously, that's a statistical impossibility. But let's try to get every kid possible reading at grade level because, you know, as he's said over and over, and as I kind of pointed out in the series uh, last month on, on literacy, in Little's view, this is where it all begins. If you get kids at grade level by third grade in reading, they will have a better chance of succeeding. We will have a better chance as a state of hitting all of these other goals that we have in terms of college and career readiness, in terms of a go-on rate, in terms of a post-secondary completion rate. It all begins in K-3, and it all begins in reading. But now, this year, I think, you know, the governor really has to kind of go back to legislators and say, this is what I'm seeing so far. This is where your $26 million went, and here's where I think it's starting to bear fruit. We're early, you know, it's a work in progress, but here are some encouraging signs to look look to going forward. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so definitely thing we'll be watching for Monday's state of the state address will be what he's going to do with literacy, what he's going to do with teacher pay. There's a couple other and, things that we're going to be watching from the governor and then from the legislature it, itself. And, right? you know, and in some ways, as I was sitting listening to the governor uh, this morning, Friday morning, I was struck again by something that I've been kind of thinking for a while here, that the higher education budget is going to be a lot more interesting to, to follow, and it's going to be a lot more interesting to see what Governor Little recommends, what he proposes, and how the legislature responds. Because to some degree, you know, you and I or any, you know, you know group of education followers could sit at a table and, and more or less draw up a rough idea of what a K-12 budget from Governor Little is going to look like on Monday. And yeah, it might be, just be $1.9 yeah, billion. Dollars. Yeah, we, we'll, yeah, we can kind of play with the numbers and kind of look at what's been done in the past few years and try to get a sense of where that investment might increase, where the money might move, what kind of shifts might take place, and, and be in, in a ballpark. I have no good sense of where Governor Little is going to come down on the higher education budget what sort of recommendation he's going to make. And, and again, the governor is always going to be cagey going into these uh, AP legislative previews, uh, not going to you know, take away thunder from the state of the state address, and not going to tip a hand in terms of the budget. But higher education is a, a fascinating storyline going into this legislative session. On the heels of what the governor has already asked, universities to do in terms of budget cuts this year and the following year in light of what the four-year institutions have already unilaterally imposed in terms of a tuition freeze going into next year, putting even more pressure on those budgets, putting even more of an onus on state funding to pick up a share of the budget for higher education. I'm really going to be interested to see what the governor proposes in terms of a higher ed budget and how that's received by a legislature that is, you know, at least, you know, from, you know, from conservative circles in the legislature, you already have lawmakers raising questions about the higher education budget, the higher education, you know, higher education's agenda, if you will. Right. 
that's going to be really interesting to see unfold. Well, we talked about that on the brief walk back from the state capitol building through Capitol Park to our office. Uh, what, are the, what is he going to do? What is he going to recommend with higher education funding? What will the legislature do? Like you said, the 1% cut, the 1% spending reduction for the current budget year, the 2% base re- budget reduction for the upcoming year, and the tuition freeze, at least as it relates to in-state Idaho tuition, uh, it's going to be interesting on the higher ed side of the equation. And you had a good blog analysis on Thursday, Kevin, uh, where you looked at kind of four stories on higher education that, that could play out in 2020. And, and the funding and the budgets and the tuition freeze, that, that's all a big part of that mix. Well, just so much has changed on the higher education landscape since the end of that 2019 legislative session. I mean, we have we have the tuition freeze. We have the budget cuts that Governor Little has imposed on just about all of state government, including higher education. Right. You have new leaders. You have new presidents uh, at Boise State University and the University of Idaho, and still relatively new presidents at at Idaho State University and and Lewis Clark State College. The two new state board members uh, that Governor Little plugged this morning. And you have this political backlash pertaining to higher education, and it's been focused largely at Boise State University. It's been focused largely at new president Marlene Trump. This whole backlash about what is higher education spending its money on, is is higher education pushing a social justice agenda, you know, so on and so forth. All of these storylines have played out in the past few months, and now they come to a head at, at this legislative session. You know, Listening to Governor Little talk about higher ed this morning, um, he talked about he's hoping that the budget cuts that he's imposing will force the universities to be more focused. Right. You know, get rid of some of these degree programs that are serving three to five students um, and, and focus in on programs that are, you know, that have more value to the economy, that have more of a, a value-added component. And I kind of jokingly asked a follow-up. So, you know, you know, these programs that are high value as opposed to, say, journalism degrees. And, you know, but my, my question well, is... Well, we don't have a lot of clarity. What, what are yeah. these programs out there? Um, what where are three the low, or four or yeah. five students are participating and, and that's the low-hanging fruit that could be eliminated without doing damage to you know, our go-on rates and our our persistence yeah, yeah, what, rates what are, and things like yeah, that. What are some of these low-value degrees in terms and we didn't of get that student out. demand, right. in terms of uh, workplace demand? Uh, you know, what are some specifics here, and what does that look like? And, you know, I asked the governor about an issue that he has kind of punted on in the past, the idea of moving towards an outcome, outcomes-based higher education funding model. Uh, a lot of states have done this. Um, this uh, was a recommendation that came out of the higher ed task force that Governor Otter convened a couple of years ago. Governor Little has not moved on the issue, and I asked him, well, where, where are you on this? And, you know, didn't really commit one way or the other. He said, in theory, I like the idea of an outcome-based funding where we're rewarding, incentivizing universities to provide high-value, high-impact you know, degrees. Or whatever outcome you're trying to incentivize, it could be, you know, serving first-gen students. It could be serving students of color. You, you name it. What kind of incentives you want to you want to establish? But he said, I don't really know how you make that work. I don't know how it really works as a practical matter 
you know, how do you define, you know, how do you set a value for a high cost doctoral degree that, you know, it, it's expensive to provide it, it's expensive to offer it, it does have value uh, in some sector of the economy. How do you how do you value that? And, and Versus again, my, those what he called easier to obtain degrees. Right. I mean, you know, and, and you know, hence my joking question about journalism degrees, yeah. because, you know, Let's face it, a, ba a bachelor's degree in journalism is less expensive for a university to provide than a doctoral degree in nuclear physics, which was, you know... And it's easier example. for the student to obtain that in, in, in Right. Time. It's it's less costly for the student. It's less costly for the institution. So how do you... But how do you weigh those two things how equally? How do you monetize that? And so how he said that's you know, the rub. Right. So not a real clear answer about that. So I'm going to be really curious to see kind of how the higher education budget looks come Monday, and I'm going to be really interested to see how the higher education storyline plays out this legislative session. And, and you know, as you alluded to before, it kind of it, it kind of goes to the stories that we've already posted in terms of a preview. You looked at K-12. You looked at the big storylines ahead in, in K-12. I, I carved out higher ed and looked at some of the, the storylines from the past year and how it might affect the debate that we're going to see over higher ed. Yeah, it's it's shaping up to be, you know, a really, I think, a very tense session because I think there's a lot of tension. I think there are a lot of competing interests, a lot of competing uh, priorities and goals going into the session, especially when you're talking about an election year. I, I you know, not tension in terms of interpersonal tension, you know. Although I, there I, might I, be. There, there might be, and we saw maybe a glimpse of it here or there uh, when legislative leaders were uh, addressing the reporters. But I think there's definitely a tension in terms of priorities, in terms of focus, when you have limited resources and, you know, differing ideas about what the priority ought to be. That creates uh, the potential for a very, very tense and very contentious election year legislative session. Well, and, and I think that's almost, to me, it goes back to where the 2019 session ended. There was some tension when the session ended. Uh, there was some work that normally gets done that didn't get done. The uh, rules impasse. The rules impasse. But if you look at, you know, today's Speaker of the House, Scott Bedke, kind of ticked off in his opening remarks a handful of issues that he thinks the legislature will pay attention to. Not all of those affect education, uh, but he talked about the redistricting process. He talked about the citizens' ballot initiative process, and he talked about property taxes. All three of those things, right there, are, are going to be contentious, no matter which way they go. Right. Right. Um, against the backdrop of the elections, uh, those three things are going to be contentious. A couple of them were contentious already last year. I don't know why that would change or be any different this year. And, and here's the rub on property taxes, because that really jumped out at me as I was listening to the legislative leaders talk, you know, repeatedly going back to the issue of property taxes and the need to do property tax relief of some form. You know, Scott Bedke said it in so many words on at least two occasions that I counted, where he said, if we don't address property taxes, if we as the legislature do not address property taxes, there will be a voter initiative and it will pass and it will be fixed for us by the voters. I, I think he's very adamant and very, you know, yeah, I, I think he's very earnest in his belief about that. That if the legislature doesn't address property taxes, the voters will. The voters will impose some sort of initiative in terms of property taxes. And, well, you know, what he kind of said without saying it was, we may not like what the voters come up with. It may not be to our, you know, 
to our satisfaction and we're going to have to figure out how to make it work. But I had to ask the question because at the same time, you've got this concern about property taxes. And I, and I recognize that that's a, a real concern, uh, you know, with, with many property taxpayers around the state. You have this increasing reliance on property taxes in terms of school funding. You yeah. have another record supplemental levy bill across the state, $214 million of voter-approved property taxes to pay for schools in more than 90 school districts across the state. And the question that I that I asked that, you know, doesn't that tell you that at the same time, voters are at least concerned, maybe equally concerned, maybe more than equally concerned about the way the state is funding education to the point where they're willing to say, yeah, I'll pay property taxes to pick up some of the, the slack to fill in some of the blanks in terms of school funding. And the only legislative leader who, you know, who, who took the bait on that question was Alana Rubel, the new uh, House Minority Leader, Correct. Who, who said, yes, I would definitely like to see us do better in terms of funding education at the state level. And that would alleviate a lot of the pressure on property taxes across the state. If we could just get to the point where, and she can put a number to it, but if you just get to a point where we're adequately funding K-12 at the state level, maybe a lot of this property tax pressure goes away because the need for these supplemental levies goes away. Yeah, but but again, it, it goes to these competing pressures that I see playing out this legislative session. It's property tax reform. It's grocery taxes, which, you know, you talk about an issue that uh, the, the governor left hanging on, on yeah. Friday. It was like, well, maybe. Maybe. And, maybe. And maybe I'll address it in the state of the state on Monday. That's an $80 million question. If you really are serious about trying to do a grocery tax repeal that you said you wanted to do a year ago, but you wanted to wait and, and let things play out. Well, a year has come and gone. Does Governor Little push on this grocery tax issue in his state of the state? Does he incorporate it into his budget? Well, we heard maybe we'll, we get, a, heard we'll, get, a, we'll get a yes or no on, on, on Monday. We also heard the Speaker of the House say that and I'm paraphrasing here, and this can be dangerous, but basically saying that he would almost prefer to increase the tax exemption that Idahoans get for the grocery tax rather than to repeal the tax. And he was talking about that way you have your out-of-state visitors coming in paying full freight on the tax, and the Idahoans get a break. And so it is a complicated and, and he, issue. And, and, and Becky's been there before. He opposed the grocery tax repeal way back in 2017 when I think it was 17, that year that, and I think it was 17, that the legislature uh, did a grocery tax repeal that was vetoed. Oh, yeah, yeah, that led to the end of session drama in right. the court ruling. Right, yeah. yes. I think that was 2017. Whichever year it was, uh, Becky voted against it, and, you know, has, has always been kind of more in, you know, in the camp of let's do something in terms of the grocery tax credit. Right. Let's, you know, index the grocery tax credit. Let's increase the grocery tax credit. Let's Let's address, you know this tax issue that way. But he's in the minority in the legislature, or at least he was when this last came up for a vote. And I suspect that he's probably still in the minority. I think if you straw polled the legislature right now, you would find more legislators saying, yes, let's get rid of the grocery tax. Let's just do it. I think there's probably 36 votes in the House to repeal the grocery tax. And I think there's probably 18 votes in the Senate to repeal the grocery tax. And Governor Little has stated a desire to get rid of the grocery tax at some point. But is this year that some point? We'll get a better sense from the governor on Monday. But even if he doesn't push this issue, 
you can bet that there are going to be legislators who are, who are just chomping at the bit to, to, to try to do something in terms of the grocery tax. There will be a grocery tax bill this yeah. session, whether it's coming from the governor or whether it's coming from legislators. I'm, I'm almost certain. And we haven't heard the last of this issue. And I'm just flashing back to the, uh, I think it was December 4th, the Associated Taxpayers Conference of Idaho, where the governor spoke. And he pretty much suggested at that event, uh, when I covered it, that while the grocery tax repeal remains important to him, his bigger priorities of funding education and having a balanced uh, budget uh, may outweigh the grocery tax. That's what he suggested a month ago. Uh, so we'll see what he comes up with on Monday uh, well, during the State of the know, State. The, the, the bottom line, and this is Captain Obvious stuff here, but you know, every dollar you spend on tax relief, every dollar you put into tax relief, i.e. the grocery tax repeal, is a dollar you can't spend someplace else, namely education. So is the top priority for Governor Little in year two yeah. continuing the investments in K-12, continuing the investments in areas such as literacy, making maybe a down payment on a, an increase in teacher pay uh, targeting veteran teachers. Is that priority number one for the governor or is uh, tax relief uh, a top priority for the governor? I think there are legislators who would put tax relief as their top priority. So yep. that's uh, that's what we're going to be watching for. And that's what this legislative session could boil down to, uh, the competing priorities of investment, namely education investment, which is what we'll watch most closely, Versus uh, versus tax relief. I, I think that's going to be a theme of the session is competing priorities and and these little fights and battles for control and influence and power and what wins out. I think that'll be really important to watch. And, and we don't know how the hot button issues are going to play out. You know, uh, you mentioned the the rules process. We we kind I was of just going to go there. Yeah, and I think it, and I think it bears a couple of minutes uh, of talk here as we as we wind through here. I thought. Um, Senate President Pro Tem Brent Hill was very optimistic when he talked about this rules process. Oh, it may take a little bit longer. Oh, it may take a couple of weeks, but I don't think it's going to be a big hang-up. I, 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 I'm not buying that. He may have been speaking from a senator's perspective on that one, Kevin. And he may have been aspirational in, in hopes that uh, you know there will not be a, a big logjam over rules. Again, I think you've got legislators who are, who are chomping at the bit to take a run at some of these rules. I mean, we, we had a Voices piece just this week from Dorothy Moon, yeah. House, House Education, Education Committee, Committee member, saying we are going to be heard on Common Core. You know, you know, the governor can talk about we've reduced rules by 75%. We've cut a lot of language. We've cut a lot of verbiage. To the Dorothy Moons of the world, you still haven't cut rules that really matter because you're still leaving rules in place like Common Core that she wants to get rid of. And she's not the only legislator who wants to get rid of Common Core. If, if, if you think there's not going to be a showdown over Common Core in the House Education Committee, at some point in this 2020 legislative session, you've got another thing coming. It, it's it's going to happen. As, as sure as we're sitting here, it's going to happen. I think the rules review process will be the first big, I don't want to say fight because that almost has such a pejorative connotation, but the first big debate of the legislative session in the House Education Committee, I think, is likely to be the rules review. And that's going to, you know, we're going to jump in the time machine here and go back in time a few years. Uh, if it sounds familiar, like we were arguing over academic standards a few years ago, well, we were. And I think it'll happen again in 2020. But I think they'll look at um, what's become Idaho's version of the Common Core State Standards, the Idaho Core Standards. I think they'll look at them. And I think they'll, 
I think they'll pull up the supporting content and go through it line by line. And I think they'll have people lined up to testify. I think they'll look at the science academic so standards. Try to take another bite out of that apple. And it sure. may be a different committee, and it will be a different committee, but they may well look at the immunization guidelines for school-aged children. That likely will happen in health and welfare, not the education committee. But that could uh, that could come up. But you've got the Idaho Freedom Foundation steadily beating that drum. You've got a chorus of legislators, including Representative Dorothy Moon, Republican from the uh, Salmon and Chalice area who sits on yeah. House Ed, mm-hmm. saying that Common Core is a big issue and that citizens, she feels like, uh, raised the issue this summer uh, during some hearings across the state and that justifies heavy scrutiny. Uh, but I, I, I mean, those could be contentious hearings. Those could potentially divide the education community, community and legislators. Um, the science standards took three years. Uh, when I go back just a, a few years ago, it took three years because of debates over how prescriptive the language and supporting content was and specifically how we address things like age and history of the universe and fossil fuel and human impact on the environment. They're going to want to go through many of these standards word by word, line by line. And if it took House Ed, I want to say three weeks Last year, to go through just the new slate of rules, the fact that they'll have a new slate of rules and then the all the old ones that they can go through, uh, I mean, you know, well, maybe Senator Hill was right, but I, I think in the House, I, I particularly, so. it could be a divisive, time-consuming process, and I think we're going to get there sooner rather than later, closer I, I, to January. I think Governor Little has put the best face he can yeah. on this rules topic. I mean, he's kind of taken the victory lap oh, yeah. about reducing rules by 75% and reducing verbiage. I mean, yeah, he went to the White House in December and, and was held up as an, the toast example, of the nation. as an example of getting rid of uh, of redundant rules. And he may or may not have been called Fred. That's been, you know, the debate about, you know. Yeah. You know they may not have realized They may not was. have gotten his name right. They may have gotten his name right. Whatever. Uh, Governor Little has made this into a signature accomplishment of his first year. So, you know, good job, Fred. Good job, Brad. But, you know, (laughs) I think that for some legislators who want to take another run at Common Core or the science standards or immunization, the debate over rules is just beginning. And I don't think that they're going to be um, I I don't think they're going to be satiated by uh, a reduction in sheer verbiage of rules. They, they may like it. They may like the streamlined rules. I don't think anybody's going to be clamoring. For oh, that's good longer, too. But we can do better. Yeah, but we can do more. I mean, yeah, that's a nice start. But now let's get to the to the heart of the matter. Let, let's get to some rules that we really want to get rid of entirely because we don't like them. So I, I think that um, you know, you know, Senator Hill, you know, bless his heart, is an optimist deep down, and I think you know he may be a little bit too optimistic about how this rules process plays out, because even the Democratic leaders who are on the podium uh, said, let's at least look at what we've you know, gotten rid of. Let's look at the words. Sometimes words matter. And let's make sure that we didn't do any damage along the way. I think it was uh, Senate Minority Leaders. Michelle Stennett was the one who's saying that you know, most, most pointedly. So I think you, know, you get Democrats saying, hey, well, hold the phone. Let's make sure we didn't do something uh, we didn't mean to do. Let's make sure there aren't unintended consequences. And I think you've got conservatives who are going to push for something entirely different and seeing this as their opportunity. And, and the I House think that's may, where it all begins at, at this legislative And session. the House may be more aggressive on rules 
this year than the Senate. And that would sort of keep with last year's position, too, where the House wanted more influence overall in the rulemaking process and sort of took their ball and went home at the end of the session uh, without approving the rules as the traditional step, which is why we're in the situation that we're in today. If you're a House conservative who pushed hard for having more say over rules. This is a dream come true in an election year. Exactly. You can come home and campaign on this. And you you brought this process basically to a grinding halt at the end of the 2019 legislative session, creating this opportunity to look at rules again in 2020. Do you settle for just getting rid of verbiage or do you see this as a, a, you know, your once in a lifetime chance to take a run at rules that you don't like? Of course, you're going to push this thing harder. I, I, there's there's no question in my mind that you've got legislators who see this as a bonanza and, and are not going to just settle for uh, what has already happened. So I, I think this rules process, that's where it all begins. And that's sort of the backdrop the first few weeks of the legislative session. It always works out that way, that this is the first thing the legislature takes on. Ah, we're going to be in, in a hot yeah. and heavy rules discussion for the first few weeks of the session. As the budget starts to take shape, as, you know, JFAC starts its work on the budget recommendations and starts to meet with state agencies, as we get ready for education week, the third week of the legislative session and the budget presentations from the universities and the colleges and from state superintendent Sherry Ibarra, it's going to begin really quickly. It's going to begin really fast. And um, this is this is going to be a wild session. There's no yeah. two ways around it. Didn't hear a lot about it this morning. Didn't hear at all about it this morning from the governor or for legislative leadership. But I do keep hearing that there are legislators who are going to take a, a run at the funding formula. That that issue is going to be back this year. I don't know exactly how it's going to go. I don't know if it's going to be a different outcome the next year. But although the governor didn't mention it, although leadership didn't mention it, I know legislators are working on that. And I know the Freedom Foundation is interested in that as well. And that was a divisive issue from 2019. It was almost so complicated with all the different spreadsheets seemingly changing by the week that nothing got out of committee out of committee last year because in a lot of regard, concern about the impact that it would have on school districts, particularly your small, remote, isolated school districts, um, that could be experiencing enrollment declines, what would it do to those districts? And so because it was complicated and divisive and we were unsure of the impact and didn't know if we had all the definitions and reporting data in place, nothing got out of committee in 2019. I don't know how it's going to go this year, but I know it'll be back. And I know <laughs> if, uh, it, that could be another confusing, divisive issue potentially. In one where you've had key legislators who spent several years studying this issue, you had the legislature pass a definitions bill, yeah. you know, the funding formula light bill that we keep talking about from last session, as sort of a scene setter for a potential rewrite of the funding formula. I think you've got legislators who want to do something on the funding formula who are going to look at it several years into the process and say, if we've done all this work, why do we stop now? You know. What was all this work for? What was all this effort for if at the end of the day we still had the same funding formula that uh, many legislators believe is just, just flat out antiquated and it's got to go? Yeah, so, 25 years old. And, and it hasn't aged well because yeah. the school system and the education structure has changed so much in the, the past 25 years. So, again, another another issue that I think uh, is going to, you know, it, it all adds up to, I think it's going to be a fairly long session. I think it's going to be a fairly contentious session. 
Yeah, uh, for sure. I, I agree with that. I, I was just going to end there and say, I, I think that there's so much we don't know about the session that it's really difficult to make any predictions at this point on how anything will go, except to the fact that I'm really skeptical of some of the optimism that it could be a short and sweet session. I think back in December, legislative leadership set a targeted adjournment date along about the third week of March or so, maybe the fourth week of March. I'm skeptical of that just because I think the rules review process alone could attack on a couple of extra weeks at the beginning yeah. of the session where we're not really getting into paying attention to legislation and, and new bills uh, whereas we're looking back at he, the old rules. Even by Brent Hill's optimistic forecast on the rules process, he said, yeah, it might take another couple of weeks. That would be over a month uh, yeah. compared to what House said so did last year. So that adds two weeks to a legislative session that we don't normally see at the front end of the session. Yeah. You know, two weeks of additional work on rules. If this legislature is trying to get out by the third week of March, you know, I'm sorry, bet the over. It's just not, I, I just don't see how it's going to happen. I'm not buying plane tickets in March or early April, I'll tell I you that I wouldn't much. recommend it. I mean, you know, tree four tickets may be a, <laughs> maybe. I've already got those. I've already got those. I'll cover for you. All right. Uh, it, let's just talk real quick about how we're going to cover State of the State real yeah. quick on Monday. IdahoEdNews.org will be the place to be later Monday afternoon. The big speech is at 1 o'clock in the House chambers. I'll be there, hopefully sitting uh, close up to the governor on the House floor. You're going to be on Idaho Public Television for their live broadcast. So if people want to catch a little analysis, particularly through the lens of education, uh, seek out your yeah. local Idaho Public Television channel. Yeah, uh, they'll have be... a broadcast of the speech Monday at 1, and then some immediate analysis uh, with you, Kevin, and a strong uh, political it's a team. Great, it's a great panel. It, it's, you know, Alex Adams, you know, the governor's key budget writer, you know, is going to be on the on the panel on, on set. Stephanie Witt, a uh, professor from Boise State University, is going to be on the panel. I'll be on the panel as well. So we'll have, you know, we'll be, depending on how long the governor goes, you know, we get what the leftover time, but yeah. we'll have an opportunity to kind of break down the speech, uh, get into some of the, the details and maybe set the stage for what happens now that now that the speech is out there, now that the recommendations are out there, what happens next. So yeah. if, you're, if you're not able to be there in person on Monday for the State of the State, uh, the best place to go to watch it is uh, Idaho Public TV. Idaho Public TV, you can find your local listing for me in Boise. That's Channel 4, but it might be different for you depending on uh, how you watch it and where if you live. If you're listening to us within... Yeah, boundaries of the state. There is a public TV affiliate somewhere for you. If you can't get in front of a TV, but you want to watch it anyways, you can stream it on the legislature's exactly. website. Uh, the, yeah, the legislature's website. Go to live streaming. It will be broadcast from the House chambers just about 1 o'clock straight up on Monday. I'll be there to cover it. I'll have a full story with reaction. We'll meet with the governor again after the speech, I anticipate. Uh, and then meantime, today... Friday, January 3rd, if you want even more analysis, uh, you can catch Kevin and our friends on Idaho Public Television, yes. the, we'll the first Idaho Reports episode of the new year, looking all ahead to the legislative session. Right. We'll have the preview uh, episode of Idaho Reports that'll uh, air on Friday night, and that will be available online afterwards. So if you don't catch it on Friday, you can catch it later. All right. And we will be back here next week. Uh, to recap the first week of the legislative session, tell you all about the governor's speech. We will be able to fill in all the details and specifics and particulars that we did not know today. We will be back with those details next Friday, as well as reaction from some key legislative players, 
maybe some folks out in the education community. And that's the thing I'll be watching, just what kind of tone will Governor Little set, particularly on education issues come Monday? Will he come out and be a strong champion and say, this is what I'm going to push for and fight for this year, and I cleared the decks for education investment with the spending reset in other areas of the state? Or will it be a different message? Yeah. Um, we'll know soon enough. We'll know on Monday, and we'll be back to report all about it. All right. So full coverage on Monday. Follow us at edoednews.org. Follow us on Twitter for any uh, breaking bulletins. We will post those. Uh, follow us on Facebook. We post our stories there, and you can join the conversation there. Ready or not, the legislature is here. Yeah, and if you have questions throughout the session, uh, if something doesn't make sense or if you're not sure if they're taking something up, you're always welcome to reach out to us. Twitter or email are great. Uh, but if, if you're a taxpayer or a parent or an educator listening to our show and you want to know, hey, uh, having a hard time following the session, what are they doing on teacher pay? What are they doing on kindergarten? You can reach out and, and we'll try to address it specifically. Uh, but Twitter and email are great ways to reach out. But we always have a lot of fun on the Extra Credit Podcast. We're excited to be back in 2020. Uh, but we enjoy breaking down this ever-complicated issue of education politics and education policy. And boy, buckle up for the next three yeah. months, 80, could be 90 more days. more complicated than ever. This could be as around. complicated as ever. But thanks so much for joining us. I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. Have a good week.